0: Mike. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Good morning.
0: How you doing? <laughs> all right. Mike is the author of Drug Crazy, how he got into this mess and how we can get out of it. Mike is also the uh, author of the China Syndrome and produced the award-winning documentary on the uh, murder of Fred Hampton. Whoa! So damn. you've been all over the place with the uh, War on Drugs, with the uh, nuclear meltdown, and with uh, Chicago Police Department assassinations. You're only in the happiest of
1: stories, aren't oh, you? Oh yeah, really. Who am I talking to here?
0: You're talking to Chuck.
1: Chuck, okay. But I'm chiming in. Chuck,
0: and that's Jeff. Jeff, say yep. hello to Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, Jeff. And Danny, say hello. Danny. Greetings. I'm going to insinuate myself in a <laughs> slippery <laughs> Very sort of way. We're mobbing you to today. Yes. Well, all right. You all might right. not get a word in anger. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, how did you uh, get interested in the history of the war on drugs?
1: Well, I knew, uh, I mean, like most Americans have known for some time, this is a tragic failure. Uh, <clears throat> I used to... Uh, uh, you know, question politicians. when I, uh, you know, politicians are always coming to Hollywood for money, and I belonged to a group called the Show Coalition. And, and uh, when Senator Mitchell or somebody like that would come out looking for cash for their campaigns, I would uh, <clears throat> say, you know, when are you guys going to get serious about the the drug war? And this is a disaster, and you need to change your policy and so forth. They would always bob and weave, and nobody would ever answer the question. But uh, what I noticed was that after the thing was over, half a dozen people would always come up to me and say, Hey, you know. Uh, I really uh, appreciated what you said there because I agree. Uh, but uh, you know, I uh, I don't feel right about saying anything. And it occurred to me that what has happened, uh, what had happened, was the debate had just simply been shoved aside by the government's position that drugs were so dangerous you couldn't even talk about them. And uh, and they had managed to uh, eliminate a serious debate on this issue for almost 20 years by just simply stigmatizing anybody who stood up and said, "Hey, we oughta, we ought to take another look at this." you were instantly labeled as a drugo, soft on drugs, a commie pinko, whatever. And uh, it, that seemed to me to be uh, reminiscent of some of the other things that I had been involved in in the past that <laughs> were just taboo to talk about, uh, like police assassinations or nuclear uh, power plant uh, safety. So I got into it. I figured it would take me, hmm, you know, I thought I would make a documentary. I figured what I would do is I'd interview all of the experts on video cut it together and make a nice little uh, enlightening documentary and it would maybe take me a year or so. That was eight years ago. (laughs) And uh, so once I got into it, uh, Chuck, I found out that almost everything I had been told, everything that even though I was a critic and had tried to analyze this stuff sensibly, uh, er everything I knew or thought I knew was a total mistake. It turns out all the information we've been given on this subject is bogus government has been lying through their teeth systematically now for 80 years. And uh, once you dig into it, you discover that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support the argument of prohibition. It's been a disaster everywhere it's been tried on the planet, and the drug war is absolute proof that uh, uh, prohibition has the effect of making the unintended consequences dominant. In other words, uh, it... uh, it produces exactly the opposite result of everything you intended.
0: So let's start with some of these lies. How did we get into this mess in the first place back in 1914 when this whole thing, well, actually 1908 when the whole thing seemed to start uh, get going? Um, how did uh, this whole mess start? How did these lies start about uh, even hard drugs like opium, cocaine, and heroin?
1: Well, we did not have a drug problem in this country in 1900 when uh, uh, what we had was a, uh, a, an alcohol problem. And... Uh, and uh, There was a great temperance movement that had risen up. uh, uh, Of course, the temperance movement had a racial component as well. Uh, The the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, who uh, were dominant in the society, did not like all these booze-drinking Irish (laughs) and and Middle European Catholics coming over to the United States uh, and hanging around in the saloons where their votes could be bought for a dollar and all that sort of thing. Uh, So... The temperance campaign rose up actually as an extension. It, it was it was the progressive wing of the Republican Party who actually got behind the idea of pro, of, of uh, alcohol temperance because they uh, uh, this was the crowd that had freed the slaves, the party of Lincoln, and they after the Civil War they got the impression that they could solve any problem, no matter what problem it was, they could solve any social problem by simply passing a law. And they thought let's pass a law against booze because that clearly is the source of all evil on the planet if we can eliminate the saloon we'll have a perfect utopian society so <clears throat> that was the temper of the time there was no drug problem there were practically no drug users then or now in other words we've never been talking about more than a few tenths of one percent of the population when it comes to serious hard drug users and there were a, there were a handful of lunatics around at that time that simply took advantage of the situation in the public mood and, uh, and they roped in drug prohibition along with alcohol prohibition. Now, alcohol prohibition crashed and burned 13 years later in 1933. Uh, it, uh, it simply was overwhelmed by the violence, the corruption, <clears throat> the destruction of the judicial system, the fact, and the fact that children had access to alcohol in a way that they never had before. Kids could buy booze anywhere. And uh, so they realized that uh, finally that uh, what they had intended uh, was the exact opposite of what they got. And so they, they ended alcohol prohibition in 1933, and drug prohibition should have ended with it for the same reasons at the same time, and that is the violence, the corruption, the uh, prisons, uh, the paralysis of the judicial system, and so forth. Problem is, there weren't that many drug users. There were a lot of drinkers, enough drinkers to carry the day. But, Drugs, hard drugs in particular, have never appealed uh, to very many people and, and never will. In other words, before 1914, uh, when both drugs and alcohol were legal, almost nobody did drugs. 300,000 addicts in the entire United States. That's three-tenths of one percent of the population. After 1914, when both drugs and alcohol were illegal, still almost, almost nobody did drugs. And after drugs are are... Legalized and regulated, uh, and uh, controlled by the government instead of controlled by the mob, we will find a similar situation. Almost nobody will will do drugs. You
0: even say in your book that uh, opium, which was uh, uh, really mm, sensationalized by the Hearst Corporation's newspapers, uh, not many people had even heard of it, and opium use had gone up through his discuss- discussion of it as an evil in his papers.
1: Right, uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> telling kids not to do something specific. You know, it's like telling uh, 5 uh, three-year-olds, don't stick beans up your nose. I mean, um, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, uh, children are engineered to rebel. That's their job. Right. You know, it's part of their genetic makeup. So if you tell them, don't sniff glue, the first thoughts come through their minds. Well, gee, that never occurred to me. I wonder what that's about. You know? <laughs> You you were just saying that uh, the
0: race card was played in the war on drugs really early on, and it was also played against uh, uh, the Chinese Americans in San Francisco with opium. It was yeah. played. It was played against uh, Mexicans and Mexican Americans with right. marijuana. So this, and uh, there are many. There is uh, lots of documentation of this as just kind of a racist attack against
1: people. Yeah, the, the, uh, every uh, in every case, without exception, every time a drug law has been passed, there was a racial component. Um, like I said, the, the, uh, the, the stigma uh, of, uh, against alcohol had to do uh, not with alcohol per se, uh, which the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants drank, but, but their concern about the Catholics, who were serious drinkers. Right. And uh, uh, in the case of uh, cocaine, um, you see references in the newspapers of the time, the New York Times, to uh, the, uh, quote, drug-crazed nigger, okay? Now, there's no evidence whatsoever, and a a thorough search by Dumetz and Kolb and the other uh, leading uh, uh, health authorities in the United States showed that there was no evidence whatsoever that blacks were more likely to use cocaine than white, in fact, quite the other way around. Uh, But the the reason that blacks had to be stigmatized was because the southern bloc in the Senate refused to allow national police laws. With good reason, they had all these carefully engineered Jim Crow anti-black laws in the South, and uh, they did not want any federal laws regarding uh, drugs because that would call for a national police force. So, in order to get around that problem, this constitutional problem, and get the Southerners on board, they had to invent the idea of the, of the drug-crazed former slave standing at the at the uh, foot of the bed, you know, flowered uh, white uh, youth. And uh, and that specter was enough to uh, turn the southern senators uh, from their resistance to this law and get them to back it.
0: So, but there's no
1: evidence for it whatsoever. It was an invention of uh, a guy named Hamilton Wright, who uh, had we not had 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 we found some other line of work for this lunatic it's conceivable that uh... none of these problems would have confronted us today it was the, largely he was the guy who kicked this ball off and got it rolling back in 1904
0: so hamilton Wright, in uh... In a, well not even an attempt in a successful attempt to circumvent the constitution he made up a myth a racist myth in order to implement a national drug force to uh... preside over uh... drugs as a crime
1: yeah absolutely and harry onslinger did the same thing with marijuana a few years later he was confronted with a similar problem, a resist, national resistance to one of the laws that he wanted to pass. And he was personally, Harry Onslinger was the head of the Bureau of Dangerous uh, Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and uh, a former railroad cop who knew nothing about medicine, drugs, or anything else. He was uh, involved with alcohol prohibition, and uh, that turned out to be a failure. And he was determined that uh, when, they, when they gave him this job that this was not going to be a failure. And uh, in order to get people inspired behind his efforts, he invented the myth of, uh, of marijuana, reefer madness, all that stuff, that he came up with those ideas and, uh, and was successful in spreading them with the help of the Hearst organization, simply because they were interested in some sensational news story. But the thing is, how Onslinger how pushed this through, it was during the Depression, 1934-35, the depths of the Depression. Uh, and... The problem was, in the eyes of people in southern states like Texas and Louisiana and so forth, the problem was all these damn Mexicans standing around, you know, because prior to the, uh, to the Depression, it was very helpful to have all this cheap labor here. But now there were millions of gringos in the bread lines. Who needs these Mexicans? Right. So the problem was, how do you stigmatize somebody and make them the other when they look like us and act like us and basically do the same things. Uh, and you can't stigmatize somebody for working too hard for too little money. Not in this country. <laughs> and you'll never get by with that. So, um, so <laughs> the one thing the Mexicans did was they smoked this weed. Cannabis. Marijuana, they called it. And Anslinger invented these stories about how... Uh, uh one marijuana joint uh you were instantly addicted and uh and you'd kill your mother with an axe and
0: uh everyone and, knows that
1: yeah right and he he uh Victor Lacata was one of his favorite stories he used to tell congress about poor Victor Lacata young teenager in Florida who smoked a marijuana joint and chopped up his entire family now the fact that the guy was a paranoid schizophrenic and had been diagnosed with serious medical problems uh, years before that, uh, did not enter into the, uh, to Anslinger's calculations. Uh, and, and so he, it just uh, this is typical of how this stuff has been done. Back in those days, nobody questioned this stuff. In other words, the federal government officials said one of them, made a statement about this kind of stuff, everybody, ooh, yeah. And uh, fortunately, that no longer is the case.
0: A uh, guy down the street from me when I was growing up actually uh, axed a family, and uh, I never saw him touch pot. So there you are. <laughs> I don't think that that was it either. Why did the uh, 1972 Nixon Commission on Marijuana uh, get completely ignored by the government and the media?
1: Well, first of all, they only printed 20 copies. <laughs> There's a good reason. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and the, the president uh, at that time had tremendous power because there was no Internet. And, uh, and there was not... I mean, the other thing is, Marijuana had been swept up in the uh, Vietnam War issue. And it is still connected with that issue today. In other words, one reason that people over 60, oft times, when the subject of marijuana is brought up, their eyes cross, and uh, they start frothing at the mouth, because marijuana in the minds of of, uh, that generation, my generation, uh, is not... Uh, just simply something that you smoke. It is the black flag of anarchy. It represents all those hippie war protesters, the girls with the bare breasts, the uh, uh, you know the flag burners. Everything is all tied up in that image of marijuana. And until my generation is dead and buried, <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be stuck with the fallout. The, of the Vietnam War in, I think that even country.
0: after you uh, move on there are plenty of people my age who will do who will just follow right in the footsteps of the generation why don't you tell people what the conclusions of the Nixon Commission on marijuana were
1: well basically uh, uh, at, at the time there were five national working groups working concurrently on this issue because the 60s you remember raised this uh, this issue uh, uh, front and center uh, because uh, marijuana was uh, was, a, was an issue not only in this country but in Europe and uh, uh, all over. Uh, so several governments simultaneously got on the case. They were they they, and most of them instituted these proceedings as Nixon did, with a view toward getting final, uh, certifiable scientific instrument information that showed that marijuana was instant death and uh, would make you crazy and split your chromosomes and your children would have two heads and whatever. Cool. And a whole list of possibilities there. Man, that'd be
0: so cool to have a kid with two heads. <laughs> there you
1: are. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, the Bond Working Group in Holland, uh, the Ledain Commission in Canada, and the Schaefer Commission in the United States were the three big ones that were working at the same time. And they all three came to the same conclusions. that Marijuana was totally benign, probably uh, one of the least harmful substances on the planet. And that it had uh, certain uh, therapeutic possibilities, and that there was uh, absolutely no reason for it to be illegal, particularly not in the face of of legalized and regulated alcohol. I mean, if you if there, the one thing that all the scientific studies proved, much to the government's chagrin, was that there is one drug that is truly evil, and that is alcohol. It does make you violent. Uh, it does impair your driving. It does uh, make you. Uh, Cuckoo, and uh, and it will destroy you physically: your heart, your liver, your lungs, everything goes. And um, but we tried outlawing alcohol, <laughs> and it didn't work. So gave us organized crime and the mob. And uh, so basically, you know, it's. I mean, um, I'm uh, my eyes are getting crossed. Now. You know, uh,
0: yeah, I was just going to say um, one of the things that. Well, you compare the drug uh, prohibition that is going on now with the alcohol prohibition of the 20s and 30s. You do it uh, in, throughout the book. And, and often I will hear Europeans, uh, European news broadcasts, BBC, uh, French Journal do. Uh, they'll claim that Americans have a really simplistic view of uh, history by comparing like Saddam Hussein to Hitler, or Slobodan Milosevic to Hitler, or mm-hmm. whoever to Hitler. Yeah. Um, do you think it's simplistic to compare today's drug prohibition with yesterday's uh, alcohol prohibition?
1: Well, there are certainly differences, but the similarities far outweigh the differences. Uh, one of the major differences is that not that many people do drugs, as I said before. There, there's a there's a huge constituency of drinkers, and uh, uh, but there's only, according to the federal government's number, there's only about three million serious hard drug users. Now, that's if you take marijuana out of the equation. In other words, they say there are 10 million uh, marijuana smokers and three million hard drug users, so that gives you 13 million drug users. Therefore, they are able to justify their $50 billion a year jihad on uh, drugs. But if you take marijuana out of the equation, then you're only, well, you've only got 3 million drug users, which is hardly enough to to justify this uh, this kind of an effort. But uh, the similarities between the way that uh, drugs were, were, were made illegal and, and how the problem was handled by the federal government once they got a handle on it Uh, those parallels are exact. In other words, the corruption, the destruction of the judicial system, the fact that prisons are uh, the only serious growth industry in the country, the fact that we've got uh, a million six now incarcerated, the largest number in the history of the planet we've put in jail, and uh, those things all resonate exactly with alcohol prohibition.
0: You know, uh, this is just an aside, but uh, didn't the Kennedys, America's royal family, amass a good part of their uh, fortune through bootlegging during the Prohibition?
1: Sure. Joe Kennedy was uh, notorious for being involved with Canadian whiskey. And uh, the Bronfmans, who now own uh, Universal Pictures, uh, they were a Canadian family that participated fully in, uh, in the uh, transport of booze into the United States um in any number of uh, multimillionaires uh, and and the same thing is going to be true of uh in in the situation with drugs so i wonder one, one of these i mean like the the uh capos of the Cali cartel uh the ochoas and people like that they sent their children to stanford you know,
0: I wonder if uh, Larry Hoover, uh, the leader of the Gangster Disciples here in Chicago, I wonder if his son is going to have like three days of mourning on TV just like uh, Joe Kennedy's son.
1: Quite would. possible.
0: <laughs> yes. Quite um, possible.
1: If, if Larry set enough aside, and one thing, I, I, don't, know, I don't know where Larry, Larry put the dough, but uh, if, if someday his family is able to lay their hands on it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are definitely going to be movers and shakers in American society.
0: Um, Tell me if I'm not too sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but what did uh, Tim LoRoFF is that how you pronounce it? LoRoFF, yeah, LoRoFF, uh, a DA here in Chicago who has presided over thousands of drug cases. What did he mean by uh, saying that uh, the Chicago court system is is not producing justice; it's manufacturing revolutionaries?
1: Well, I witnessed uh, 26th and Cal, uh, the criminal justice system, uh, in action. It's, uh, uh, it's something I recommend to anybody who has any doubts about where to come down on this issue. Go down there and spend an hour in criminal court. It's open to the public, as long as you're not carrying a weapon. And, <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, uh, the, one, the first thing that hits your eye is that the judge and, uh, and all the court officials are shielded from the audience by bulletproof Lexan glass. Uh, that was a shocker to me. And. Uh, and then, and then it became apparent, why? Because all the court officials, this is, I'm talking about night drug court. In other words, uh, Cook County, 26th in California, if you go down there during the day, it more or less reflects the complexion of the city of Chicago. You've got your Pollocks, you've got your Germans and your Danes and your Englishmen and your Blacks and your Reds and your Browns and whatnot. It's the complete mixture. But at 4 o'clock, when the shift changes and they switch over to night drug court, Suddenly, all the faces are black or Hispanic. Now You'll see an occasional white face, but that's the lawyer or the judge. <clears throat> and uh, and fittingly, they're behind bulletproof glass. So, um, to watch the the, uh, the the record for the night that I was there was 11 minutes and 30 seconds from start to finish wow. for an entire trial. Uh, so we're not talking about justice here, obviously. They they they're doing uh, 14,000 cases a year was the last number i heard in night drug court and uh... the reason they're doing this is because the voters won't pay that the the criminal justice system is struggling under a burden of uh... four times the cases it was designed for and the public obviously is not going to build four more criminal courts buildings so they've just solved the problem partly by using the same real estate on a night shift and everybody hates it the lawyers don't don't want to be there the judges don't want to be there uh... everybody's been dragooned into this thing and they want to get with as quickly as possible, and, uh, you know, it, uh, it isn't justice by any measure, and, and no one who has studied at the university, I think Northwestern did a study, was highly critical, and uh, everybody who's looked at this said this doesn't have anything to do with court justice. It has to do with getting these cases processed as quickly as possible. And it occurred to me, uh, I, I realized when, when uh, I was talking to this public defender, Tim Loroff, that probation Probation is, in fact, the worst thing that could happen out of this system because a violation of probation is guaranteed prison time. So, in other words, you go in and they say, well, it's first offense, we'll give them probation. You're back out on the street. You're still a member of the Black Gangster Disciples. You're still going to be selling drugs because that's your job. Right. That's what you do for the BGDs. And uh, if you want to, you know, I mean, be a part of the... You, they, so then they catch you the second time, and it's five years off to the pen without question, and uh, so it turns out probation is like a fish weir in the middle of the stream. It just collects all these small-time uh, participants and funnels them directly into uh, the, uh, the prison system. Uh, the blacks, a black child is five times more likely to go to, to be busted, to go to the slammer, than my kid, who is white. At least I think he is. But, <laughs> any event, uh, he's, although I, there's some question about that <laughs> among <laughs> some of his friends, but anyhow, uh, you know, my kid gets a pass and, uh, and your kid doesn't. Well, the blacks are aware of this. We haven't kept this secret from them. They know that there are five hits, even though the vast majority of crack smokers is white. There has not been a single white person prosecuted for a crack offense in the five southern counties of of, uh, California in the last five years. Not one. How do you account for that? Well, there are all kinds of reasons, but what it comes down to is this is a race war, pure and simple. And uh, uh, the hatred and the hostility, I mean, uh, the OJ trial was one manifestation. That was a slap at white folks
0: right intended or not it's, intended what
1: intended trust me it was intended
0: no i mean the i mean uh the uh, uh, uh prosecution of not oh. of of whites as of uh the lack of prosecution of whites as crack users uh yeah. is because you know uh, in in When there are public sales, those people are more accessible, as you say in your book. And when there are private sales or sales inside of a home, they're less likely to actually get to them. I just want to touch on two real quick things. Um, Have mandatory sentencing or uh, forfeiture been successful in deterring the flow of uh, uh, drugs into the country or uh, deterring the uh, flow of drugs on the streets?
1: After 80 years and an expenditure of well in excess of a trillion dollars, what began with three addicts per thousand, we've now managed to bump up to 15 addicts per thousand. So it is a five-fold increase in the rate of addiction, the rate of serious hardcore addiction. That's been our net accomplishment of the war on drugs. A five-fold increase in addiction.
0: So what would you, uh, let me just one last question before we get to the question from hell, which is the question that we love to ask. You'll hate to answer Sometimes it's vice versa. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, Mike Gray, the author of Drug Crazy, it's uh, a random house book, Drug Crazy. Yes, it'll be uh, out in
1: paperback in, uh, in uh, January or February also from Routledge, but you can buy it now from Amazon.com. And if you want to uh, read the first chapter for free, you can log on to DrugCrazy.com where the first chapter is available uh, uh, for nothing.
0: It's a, it's a fantastic book. Uh, would you, so what would you suggest? Would you suggest that the complete decriminalization of uh, all drugs, or what would you suggest?
1: What, uh, what are we after? Uh, one thing we can probably all agree on is we'd like to get drugs out of the hands of children. I don't, th- I don't think anybody is interested in making drugs available to children. And yet the policy that we have pursued for the last eighty years not only has made drugs available to children, and I mean readily available to children, it has put them in the front line as, uh, as the sales force. Uh, we've got to stop that. And there's only one way. And also the corruption, the fact that. Uh, that the, uh, these, uh, we're, we're siphoning, uh, according to the UN, $400 billion a year out of the straight economy into the pockets of some of the worst criminals on the planet. And, and we can stop that with a stroke of a pen. We can also keep the drugs out of the hands of children. Children today, when they're interviewed for these national surveys, say that it is easier for them to get pot than it is to get beer. Why? because beer distribution is controlled by the state. And if you sell booze to minors consistently, you're going to be in some kind of trouble. What's more, you're not going to make very much money at it, because there really isn't that much of a market. So the risk far, far outweighs any benefits that you may make from selling a can of beer in the schoolyard. And we have to create that kind of a situation, as far as drugs are concerned, where there is absolutely no benefit to anyone, financial or otherwise, giving drugs to kids in the schoolyard. Well, and I, that, calls, that calls for uh, complete government control of distribution of uh, all drugs in some normal fashion like we do with all the other drugs that we don't seem to be having a problem
0: with. Right. I completely agree, Mike. I, I completely agree with your analysis of it. And now, Mike, are you ready? It's time for the question from Hal. Are you sitting down? Go ahead. All right. I guess, uh, geez, I re- see I hate sometimes asking these questions more than you'll probably hate answering them. So, okay. just think how I feel. What it's, drugs have you to. used, and is this book just a rationalization for your own drug use?
1: Um, <laughs> well, I guess you could say so. Uh, I've used alcohol. I had a serious problem with alcohol for many years. And uh, then uh, in 1967, I was like 33 years old, one of my assistant editors uh, at the company I was running in Chicago insisted that I try marijuana. Hmm. And I said, no, 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 that's for you kids, do whatever you want to, but, you know, I better, I, I'm a drinker. And uh, <laughs> so the guy, finally, uh, I knuckled under and I tried marijuana.
0: But and you didn't that inhale.
1: Was, huh? You didn't inhale, did you? No, 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 I inhaled deeply, <laughs> and, uh, and it was an epiphany. Uh, I did not rush right out and uh, kill my mother with an axe. Uh, my children had, my child uh, had, was an animator for The Simpsons. That may be part of the problem. Hey. But uh, <laughs> uh, he has only one head. Uh, there was apparently no chromosome damage. I mean, the whole, in other words, everything that I had been promised that was going to happen, none of that happened. And it occurred to me right in that instant, in the flash of an instant, that, hey, man, the government's lying to me. Now, that's an epiphany that strikes a lot of people, and it is, it is extremely harmful to the society. One, one example, I just wrote an article for Rolling Stone about the, the heroin massacre in, uh, in Plano, Texas. These kids were taught that heroin and marijuana were both equivalent. So when they smoked marijuana and found out that there was no problem, and that, you know, they were still getting straight A's or whatever, they figured, well, geez, they must be lying to us about heroin as well. Well, it turns out we weren't lying about heroin. But how were they supposed to know? Right. So anyhow, to you answer your question, yes, I have, I have not only smoked, I have inhaled. <laughs> uh, as for other drugs, I tried cocaine, uh, you know, when it was hot and fashionable in the early 70s, and it shut my nose down, you know, like instantly. So thank God I missed that one completely. You uh, didn't miss much. Yeah, that's what I understand. <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see, what else? I did, uh, I did Angel Dust in 1969. <laughs> That was pretty interesting, uh, not something you'd want to sustain. I did acid once, and I had the full experience from the bliss to the depth all in one trip. Thank you very much. That was uh, all I needed to know about that, <laughs> and uh, that pretty much covers it, I think. I haven't, uh, don't know, what, I've what have I forgotten? Heroin? Yes, I snorted heroin once. I, I, could, uh, I could understand what it was all about, but uh, it's not something, I, not an experience I was interested in. Too much bliss.
0: Well, I appreciate the honesty, Mike. I like the inventory as well. Well,
1: I think, I mean, one of the things that I believe, it's very important for people to know what the f- hell they're talking about. Right.
0: Thank uh, you very much. Unlike, writing, unlike the opponents
1: like. in my argument who are who are absolutely so proud of their ignorance, Blissfully they've ignorant. got to parade it.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show with us this morning. Everybody check out drugcrazy.com and check out his book. It's an amazing book. Thanks a lot for being on the air with us this morning, Mike.
1: You bet, guys. Take, I
0: appreciate it. Take care and have a great weekend. And right. write some more screenplays. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I got
1: one coming up on Colombia. How we dist- how the United States destroyed Colombia. It's called Our Man in Bogota. It'll be uh, screenplay will be uh, done probably next spring. Fantastic, Excellent. Fantastic. 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 I'll get in
0: touch it. with you about that about the movie.
1: Very good. It's all right, talk to you, Mike. Bye bye.